0: Welcome back to the channel. Thanks for joining us. Uh, today we've got another episode of Scientology Stories. I'm your host, Mark Headley. And today's guest, we have a very special guest today, um, an author, John Atak. Hi, Mark. Hey, John. Thanks for joining
1: us. Yeah, a real pleasure. And, and as we said, we somehow we've not met before. <laughs> yeah, we've never actually spoken or met
0: before um until this video right here. Until this very moment. And um John wrote a book. It was in 19 When did your book come out?
1: 1990. The first yeah, the first edition was 1990. Um yeah, and- so
0: A Piece of Blue Sky in 1990. I was just in the Sea Org, I had just joined the Sea Org in 1989, so I had been in the Sea Org a year when that book came out. Mm. And um, and and you got into Scientology, I think, in the early 70s, seventy-four, um, December seventy-four. Oh. There you go. So you were in Scientology a year um, after I was born. So your your Scientology uh, time periods predate mine pretty much mm. exactly um by that amount of decades and then we're kind of uh, all coming first, full circle uh these yeah. days back in the, in the in the future
1: i mean I, when i was you know first interviewing people to to write what is now let's sell these people a piece of blue sky um i was meeting people who'd got involved in 1950
2: yeah, and I was you, just gonna say, and you got the generation so many... of the
1: '60s, and and I'm the '70s, yeah. and it just keeps on going, and it just gets worse and worse. Just... It's wild because there's so many decades.
0: I mean, for those who who don't, who those who are just watching this, and maybe this is your first video you've watched on our channel or on John's channel. Um, Scientology has been up to nonsense for about 70 years, 70 decades, uh, or seven decades. They've been up to the nonsense that is Scientology. So there've been, uh, different, uh, a series of whistleblowers over the decades Mm. for that time. And very few of these people have, um, sustained, uh c- consistent whistleblowing that entire time. <laughs> some people come and go.
2: Some Can't people are there the for a,
0: yeah, <laughs> some people are there for a hot minute. And then as soon as they blow the whistle, they disappear mm-hmm. or Scientology gets to them or it's wild. The thing I wanted to ask you um, was, so you were in, you were in Scientology uh, starting in 1974. You wrote your book, in 1990 yeah. and the thing that always um is curious to me is why did you write the book like what like what you you were obviously you knew they were up to no good but what possessed you or what in incentivized you to say i've got to write a book
1: i just found out too much information that that we we, we hadn't been told these things you know mm-hmm. you know, it, My first day out was uh, October the 18th, 1983, and I'd been asked three days before to host a meeting at the Crown Hotel in East Grinstead, which would be the first meeting of defecting Scientologists in the UK ever. And um, there was this character called Captain Bill who was going to be there, and I'd never heard of Captain Bill. And I got to the door, and there were two members of what was then the Guardian's office standing by the door of the hotel, smiling and taking our names down, and the harassment began immediately. My incentive initially, I left the mother cult, um, whatever the Church of Scientology might be. Of course, as you and I know, it doesn't actually exist. It's hundreds of corporations that operate under that fictitious name. But um, I really believed in Scientology. I'd I'd done OT levels, the upper levels through to five, so I'd done – um, 25 of the then 27 available levels of Scientology. I'd trained as an auditor, um, done six courses doing that. I'd, I'd done the data series evaluators course, uh, you know, which is a big one. And I really yeah. believed. I really believed. I'd never been on staff. I'd never been a live in member. I had no idea what was happening. and And I think that was thing that got me within a few months of leaving i found myself in the middle the very center of the independent movement in the uk um and i stopped believing and the harassment came on down and I, we didn't know about this so going about look, the harassment yeah exactly like you thought
0: right. everything was the way it was and then when you no longer thought or no longer believed what scientology was telling you that's when the harassment – like once you started kind of saying to other people, oh, you know, there's this. This is something that – this is not really the way it is. It's really this way. Is that when they started – the guardian's office started to kind of dig their, their claws in? It,
1: it started on the first day. As soon as we, we said we were going to be meeting, there were about 60 people there. They started yeah. issuing suppressive person declares the the next day. Just for meeting yeah, for for having been there, and
2: <laughs> wow. it took them
1: a few months to get to mine because my ethics file was only this thick.
2: You know, yeah, it, yeah.
1: they were commendations. Um, <laughs> so they, they uh, in the end, I was declared suppressive for having given an auditing session without a case supervisor directive. And
0: okay, so for those of you who are, li- who are listening or those of you who are watching um signed well first of all the ethics file whenever you do anything in scientology good or bad um if there's any reports or any documentations on it that it goes into your file everybody's got a a a file they call it an ethics file in scientology and i call it a dossier
2: Um, absolutely (laughs) an intelligence (laughs) they're keeping
0: Hmm. yeah they're keeping track of you and any information on you they're gathering And those files now, these days, those files are all being digitized so they can share and access that information internationally instantly. But in addition um, to the ethics file, in Scientology, if you're doing an auditing or a counseling session, it has to be within the confines of the Scientology business setup. So you have to have all these pieces in place and also Scientology needs to get paid. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing it out of that, Um, And and outside of their control, they're obviously not getting any money and they also can't control what's happening and they can't gather any information that's obtained in these counseling sessions. So um, and that's what and that essentially is what the biggest threat to Scientology by what is called the independent movement. So there's a lot of people that believe in Scientology, but they don't want to play by Scientology's rules in terms of the business and the intel gathering on all that stuff. But they like the, the technologies or the procedures or the, the therapies. And so they'll try to do that outside of the confines of Scientology. So, so you were declared because you had a session without it being a, a case supervisor.
1: Yeah. And the reality was that I'd actually uh, phoned St. Hill to talk to a case supervisor before giving a session to a friend who was ill. And I'd been oh, given a directive goodness. over the phone. It was because it wasn't uh-huh. written down. And that was all they could find in nine years of membership. Oh, so you know, so it was really extreme. just a,
0: a witch hunt. And that's what they figured out. Mm. That's the, what they were like. Okay, we've got this. Mm. We can use this to discredit him or to, Kind of when you're when you're a Scientologist and you get a declare, it's sort of just like a a, a black. It's like a burn notice or a a, yeah. a a black mark against you to anyone who knows you in that realm. They you, just you, say this
1: guy's being, a bad guy. Yeah, you're being told that you're an antisocial personality, the psychiatric term for a psychopath. Um, yeah, and the term used by Hubbard. Um, yeah, for his suppressive person <laughs> declares, and I, I mean I. It was realizing what I'd actually been involved in, that I thought I was involved in an organization that was going to end war, criminality, and insanity. And I was actually involved in a, an insane criminal organization that had declared war on me. And that gave me the resolution. And I think that's something that people don't necessarily understand. It's said that only 6% of people will continue with a complaint. 94% of people will fall away if you can just mm-hmm. hold them off for long enough. But there are some of us who are born stubborn. And in fact, there's a Ron Hubbard story called one was stubborn and I am that one. I, and yeah. I, I just realized that I had, if you like given all of my positive energy to this group for nine years or much of my positive energy to it and all of my, yeah. and yeah. it was actually destroying people's lives. So it, it was mm-hmm. through the looking glass it was realizing this is the opposite of what it, it claims to be it's not liberating people it's enslaving them and i just got curious that you know that this story finding you know so f- for the book there are 150 people were consulted one way or another whether mm-hmm. it was a book they'd written or an article or testimony they'd given or interviews that i did and i did a lot of interviews uh, in the us and and in the uk and putting all of that together and saying well there's no history of this group and uh, apart from Janet Reitman's kind of abbreviated version of my work um, I'm afraid you know she does say it, it it chapters one through seven largely based upon a piece of blue sky or a bareface messiah and of course bareface Messiah was based on blue sky I was the researcher for it and he hadn't Russell had the manuscript before he started Um and, but, and
0: Russell, Mil- and you're talking about uh, Bareface Messiah, yeah. which was written by Russell Miller, and it had come out in I want to say in in the late '80s, right? It,
1: it came out in um, late '87, 87? Um, yeah, originally, and then uh, Henry Holt suspended publication in the U.S. because they were frightened of what might happen in the courts, um,
0: based on Scientology's threats and 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 um, filing lawsuits and oh, trying yeah. to keep this you know d- uh, before i forget didn't russell write the forward to your book
1: he did yes um, okay Perfect. and um i mean i've got the the printout of blue sky which was then called hubbard through the looking glass that that i yeah. gave to him and i've got his annotated version of it where he takes my chapter titles and things like this. but yeah. yeah i would say about half of the material in barefaced messiah which is it's not only a great book what a great title you know Barefaced yes. Messiah, but about half of the material in there came directly from me. I was the expert witness for it, as well as the all of the documents that were questioned by yeah. by the cult had come from me. Um, yes, and it was it was kind of uh, the way it felt at the time was like if if you were interested in some historical figure, let's say, and you say Henry VIII or Abraham Lincoln, and you had the chance now to interview their retinue, the people who were around them. And that yes. was what I had. I, I interviewed so many people who had been right at the top of Scientology from its from its beginnings. I mean, I, I interviewed Don Rogers, who was there was on the board of the first Dynetic Foundation in April 1950, and he gave me the title. He said, "When we opened the doors to the first Foundation just before he opened it, yeah. Hubbard turned to me and he said, "Let's sell these people a piece of blue sky." yes, and and that's what's been happening ever since. Um, yeah, but I, I I just felt outraged and I and a little solid myself that I'd been part of this and I wanted to do something to make it clear to people what this organisation is and you know have yeah. tremendous respect for the autobiographical books and I. I always recommend yours first, and they're in, I think there are nearly a hundred now because it's funny, <laughs> you know, yeah, Sarah <laughs> places in there you know where when the the war is over event in ninety three where um, yeah. one of the camera lenses has got apple juice on it, uh, yeah bit, and the other one the cameraman's looking down Shelley Miscavige's cleavage, and you ended up I yeah. believe having to there's a huge amount of money was spent just to put yes. in a few minutes there and make it look real. <laughs> So the best, the, the part
0: for me, which was, uh, I love that you say that. And thank you very much. I'm, mm. I'm flattered that you would say that I'm not in by any means. I do not, I don't usually refer to myself or call myself an author, but I did happen to write a book. Mm. Um, very good but, one. um, but when I, when I was writing it, I thought people think that this is like a deadly, serious activity and this is all run a certain way. Mm-hmm. And really, for being working there for so many years, it's basically like a bunch of high schoolers or yeah. uh, middle schoolers, literally, the, the people that are between 12 and and eighteen years old, running these organizations that d- d- don't have an education it's all about you know personal politics and rumors and the got and the r- whisper web and it's it's not run efficiently or in any sort of smart way whatsoever, and it's all being sort of commanded by this this David Miscaviger character, D- David Miscavige character. And I wanted people to understand that, no, this it's a madhouse yeah. w- where we work it, it. And it's not only is it a madhouse, it's comically a madhouse. Yeah. And, and I wanted people to see that, but also it's hard. It's hard when you had, you know, 15 years of very heavy trauma. Yeah. It's hard to tell that story and not, uh, find the 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 comedy in it or not find Mm -hmm. to not recognize the absurdity of it and the absurdity is what's funny when you Mm -hmm. when you start telling like this is actually what happened you're like it's impossible that's impossible that it happened and then as it unfolds you're just like oh this is this is crazy but it's funny it's so crazy that it's funny but um Okay, so you you said that
1: you were talking about the autobiographical,
0: uh, autobiographical yeah, the, the, books. Yeah, that have the, been written.
1: There are some, you know, there are a bunch of really good, good. You know, I could sit here for five minutes listing. You know, Jefferson Hawkins and, um, of of course, um, <clears throat> um, Janice Gillum Grady's books. Yeah. Um, Marjorie Wakefield, The Road to Xenu, that was an astonishing piece of work. So there's been a lot, you're going right back to the first one in 1951, A Doctor's Report on Dianetics by Dr. Joe Winter, which is a fine book. Um, uh, Helen O'Brien, Dianetics in Limbo, she was the head of the Hubbard Association of Scientologists and ran the Philadelphia doctorate course. And her book was never finally published, but she left it with the Library of Congress, and she kindly sent me a, a copy of it. Um, yeah, And th- so there, there are these really important, significant books. I wanted to pull everything together and make a history and say, this is chronologically what happened. I wanted to look at Hubbard's life, um, a couple of journalists had done it. There's a guy called James Phelan in 1963 who's the first, and should be sainted mm-hmm. by those of us who've left Scientology because he was the first person to point out that Hubbard was lying about everything. You know, the yeah. his schooling, his expeditions, his war service. He was the first person to get there. But it seemed important to me to take the claims that Hubbard had made and show mm-hmm. that he contradicted them which I only came to realize after I'd left, but I gathered 22 published biographies. um, uh, Well, actually, 21 published and one unpublished, the Tompkins Biographical Notes. Um, Mm -hmm. And no story is ever told the same way twice. You know, so he was either two, four, or six when he became a blood brother of the Blackfoot people, the Bikuni. Yeah. And of course, they never had Blood brothers. The, the, the yeah. tribal historian in 1990 in the LA Times went. We, we never had such a thing. It's a Viking idea. And Hubbard is going. Yeah. At two years old, I became a full blood brave. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's quite something. And that absurdity is the absurdity whereof you speak. That that you've got this science fiction writer, and he and he did that for a couple of years. This pulp writer, this adventure story writer. Who decides he's going to export this set of lunatic ideas? And that's difficult now for me, coming back to it and going, it doesn't actually make sense, any of it. That yeah. you know, when I finally decided I didn't believe it anymore, which is around the beginning of nineteen eighty four, an appropriate year for it, I suppose, that that I, yeah. I looked at it and went, you know, I don't have any body thetans. This mm-hmm. this silly idea that that you've got all of these clusters of little beings through your body, demons, dibooks, gadons. Every literature has them. It was that this yeah. is the worst kind of nonsense. And yeah. I, you know, I I pretended I went along with it, and yeah. then in my last auditing sessions, which were outside of the the mother cult, I just yeah. sat there and went, no, I, I don't have any. Other people might have them, but I haven't got any. And yeah. um, I felt so much better. <laughs> it's like, in my last session, yeah. I had a PTS rundown, and I'd never had one before. Yeah. Nine years, I'd not had one. Can you imagine that? And I demanded, this is the potential trouble source, somebody who is troublesome to Scientology. And I'd never yeah. been considered that. And the idea is you're connected to a suppressive person. And so this really highly trained um, auditor, uh, I balk at the word counselor. I don't think that Scientology is actually a form of counseling in any way. but. We yeah, don't really have. A, I,
0: I say counseling to, to as a translation word. Yeah, I, I do it too. It's not really, but yeah. when you say auditing, people are like, "Oh, there's like accountants involved." And yeah, like, no,
1: it's well, there
0: are. Ugh. You know, <laughs> there are, Yeah, there are definitely <laughs> are, but they don't the do any anymore. of the auditing. <laughs> but
1: it, it's it is fundamentally and plainly, and it's very hard for for those of us who are involved to believe this. But it's a form of hypnotism. It's a form of yeah. guided imagination, to use um, Oxford University's definition of hypnotism. You yeah. go into this imaginary world where you start to believe you have these engrams, these traumas that you've got to abreact or relive. And then you've got all of these visualization processes, um, the creative processes, uh, as Hubbard called them, which he got straight from Alistair Crowley, by the way, you know, along with quite a lot of the rest. So you've got all of this yeah. stuff going on that, that you're being put through. and the, So my last session was, you know, I was asked who was suppressing me. And I hadn't really thought what the answer would be before I sat down mm-hmm. and was asked the question. And I looked at the auditor and said, Ron Hubbard. And she went white. I'd never seen anybody blanch like this before. She, it was so much against what she believed, having to sit there and yeah. listen to this terrible man say this. And she said, could there be anybody else and i just looked and said you know i could list lots of people but this this is it i it's ron hubbard that that's he's been suppressing me for nine years and it took me about a year to get get how poetic it was that that scientology is being pts to l ron hubbard it's it's being in a state where you are a potential trouble source to Ron Hubbard. that's for sure
0: it's so funny that you say that because at the international headquarters, um, again, if, any, if, you have, if you're a Sea Org member or, or a Scientologist or a Scientology staff member or employee, at any point, if you have an accident or you get sick, um, there's no question you are a potential trouble oh. source. It's just that's it. It's period. It's, there's, no, there's no gray zone. You're a potential trouble source. Oh. And if you are a potential trouble source, then you are connected to a suppressive person. And so there would be the time periods at the international base where there would be a slew of accidents, like mm. multiple people would get in car accidents or someone be, would be unalived or there would be uh, uh, someone would lose a finger or all these things would happen. And they would almost happen in groups, like multiple at, in a week or month mm. period. And it would always be when there was a huge push or when there was a, uh, something that David Miscavige had just recently done. And it would be like, well, these people would have to go get interviewed on why they had had an accident or what had happened. And it would be, and it would almost be like it's a trick because you know it's the person you have to say is David Miscavige. But you know, if you say David Miscavige, then that's it. You're going to be in the biggest trouble you've ever been in in your life. So you can't say David Miscavige. But the, The answer that's on the tip of your tongue and in the front of your mind is David Miscavige. And you have to figure out something else to say. And um, it's funny that you didn't see. We knew that from all the past people who had been interviewed. You didn't know that. So you just said it. It was L. Ron Hubbard.
1: (laughs) I certainly was. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there's another thing that we did. A It's funny that you mentioned the hypnotism because at the um, international headquarters, we shot this video called How to Use Dianetics. And it was, sens- it was essentially the cliff notes on video for mm-hmm. how to do
1: dianetic auditing yeah. so that
0: you didn't have to read the book Dianetics. You mm-hmm. could just watch a, a 30, 45-minute video. And let's face and it, reading that sit- book
1: is, is traumatizing. 400 it pages is. of and- contradictory nonsense, yeah.
0: Not only is it almost impossible to get through, it's almost impossible for Scientology to sell somebody that book and expect that they are going to go and do that auditing in the book on their own. So they had to make a kit for somebody that had a video and it had some cassettes and it had – it was basically like this is how – you could do this. We want you to do it, but we really want you to do it so much. We're going to give you all these other things that make it so you don't have to read the book to do it. You can just watch some videos and listen to some cassettes and you could get going. And um, when we were shooting that video, there is a scene in that where somebody says, well, isn't that hypnotism? And then we did a very clever way of showing that although it, it sounds like hypnotism and it looks like hypnotism and it works exactly like hypnotism. So not hypnotism. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, and and I remember thinking about that even when we were shooting this video, is this hypnotism? (laughs) Like, are we literally, are we, they seem like very, very close cousins or maybe unknown brother and sisters. Okay.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I the. I think the single most shocking piece of research I've, I've ever done, um, was it, it publishes a paper called never believe a hypnotist. And that's a quotation from Ron Hubbard in the book, science of survival, never believe a hypnotist. Now he frequently boasted that he'd been using hypnosis since he was 16. Um, so never believe a hypnotist. You know, there's a little bit of a clue there. And I went through. Everything I could find between 1950 and 52, where words that are used in hypnosis, like trans, suggestibility, were used. And I pieced that together. And I can remember, I remember doing it now because I typed up the quotations I was taking from the many different sources. And then I printed it all off and I cut them out into separate quotations and then started putting them into different piles so that they'd fit together. And it really hit me, this was about 1993, it really hit me that Hubbard knew exactly what he was doing, that there's a description yeah. in 50 to 52 of how you enslave somebody psychologically, and then he stops talking about that and just does it. There, perhaps the classic example, which relates to early book one so-called Dianetics, Dianetics the mm-hmm. Mental Science of Modern Health, as I like to think of it. Um. He cancelled that method in 1951. In Science of Survival, he says you cannot, must not use this method because it's hypnotic. Yeah. And when you, when it was re-released in 1977, the book one course, you got this thing about waiting for the preclears' eyelids to flutter, which yes. Hubbard names as a specific effect of of hypnotic trance. So yeah. You've got this situation where they're actually using a technique that that he himself had banned and outlawed because it is definitely hypnotic. And if you go to a, anybody who's involved with Scientology and you say, this is hypnotism, they'll go, no, it isn't. <laughs> it's just yeah. immediately reject that thought. And then you say, what is hypnotism to them? And they go, oh, well, um, it's where you go into a state where you think you're a chicken or, you know, you, you're taken over. And you go, ah, that is deep trance. Yeah, When I interviewed Don Rogers, and I think Tony Ortega's put up the letters that that Don sent to me on his site, and they are incredible, um, he said, well, actually, up until the last minute, when when the book Dynetics was commissioned by Art Sepos at Hermitage House, um, he was using deep trance. So all of the original work was done using deep trance. And indeed, in the book, he says at one point, Hypnotism was never used in the research of Dianetics. And at another point yeah. in the same book, he says, this came out of research using hypnotism. But he turned around to Don Rogers and said, oh, we're going to have to use another method. And the diet, so the Dianetic method was not tested on anybody. The 273 cases that he claims had been cleared yeah. in that book, not one of them ever came forward. And he yeah. used he just used standard deep trance, actually, a, a method that, I traced down last year, finally, I found the hypnotist in Britain who'd developed the original method, uh, who was quite famous. Wow. Agatha Christie was uh, treated by him. He was a member of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. And it's the original wow. Dianetic method, which then it changes. What we're being sold in book one is actually Josef Breuer's method, which Freud started with, speaking of charlatans. Yeah. But let's not go down you know,
0: that Hubbard had no qualms about stealing anything from anyone uh, that had oh. anything to do with how he, you know, cobbled together Scientology. When when um, Ron Miscavige Senior, David Miscavige's oh. father, yep. when he first um, left Scientology, he contacted me. It's funny that your the name of the book was um, the look had that looking glass because that is exactly what he said. Oh. He said. Um, I had done a radio show in Los Angeles on on a radio station called KFI AM 640, and they had a show called Coast to Coast AM. And it sort of had to do with the paranormal and aliens and UFOs and stuff like that. And it was a late night show. And the reason, the main reason that I had picked to do that show is because the international headquarters were about two hours from Los Angeles. And one of the only radio stations that you could pick up clearly was KFI AM640. This AM station that had a very uh, large uh, transmitter that could go that far and you could tune it in very easily. And Ron Miscavige and his wife, Becky Miscavige, listened to my radio interview on that station on an iPad that they were given by David Miscavige because you could just tune into the stations digitally and and listen to your local new radio stations or however they did it. But he said that I was saying all the things that were happening at the property and he was at the property. He was still in the Sea Org. They were still loyal Sea Org members. Everything was – they were there. They were listening to this radio show and they were going you know he's saying everything he's saying is true this is what's happening here and when they they ended up getting in trouble for listening to the to the show And and bringing up saying, hey, he brought up these things are valid points. We shouldn't these things shouldn't be happening. Mm -hmm. And they're like, you can't be listening to SPs on the radio. And that's and he and he sort of said that was sort of the beginning of the end, because Mm -hmm. then they were like, what are we doing here? Mm -hmm. And then they were like, you can't listen to that. And they're like, and he's like, but it's he what he's saying is true and they're saying it's not true he's an sp and they're like no no we're here still we we know this is happening and he said it was like i was looking through the looking glass mm-hmm. like oh my god am i living in this other world but i don't know i've i've never known that i was living in yeah. this world and and when he started explaining this to me i thought You know that's funny, and he said, "You know what I'm doing? I'm on a project where I'm trying to find every piece of Scientology and where it came from." And so he had he had found there's this book called the I think it was called the the Keyhole Theory or the the Key System that had to do with um, engrams and and different things. But he had he had kind of found all these different writings, and he and the thing that he was saying was. These are all from the late 1800s and early 1900s. All these techniques and these, um, uh, you know, even study technology was not, Elron Ron Hubbard didn't come up with that. It was a couple that came up with it and they kind of, you know, pitched the idea to him and then he just crossed their names off and wrote his name and was like, hey, Scientology, here's study technology. So it was like all these little things that that he was telling me, and I thought, you know, he really did um, take a lot of things from a lot of places. And then it was all basically just boiled down to his research when he was a pulp fiction writer and in the early 50s when he did all this or the, the 40s when he did all this, quote unquote, research that was the basis of of Scientology. Mm-hmm. And you're just thinking like, dude. You didn't do any research.
2: Come on, <laughs> no.
0: Um, Your research was you reading other people's stuff and then just taking it and plagiarism and changing it just enough, just enough that maybe somebody wouldn't see like, oh, this is this or this. You have to, um, you haven't have to knowingly study Scientology and study these other things to be able to figure out which one is a copy of the other. You know, you if you d- if you hadn't studied this other guy or Freud or this guy who treated Agatha Christie, you
1: would never know
0: that that's where Hubbard lifted it from.
1: No. and I, I mean, um, firstly, Ron Miscavige was a lovely guy. <laughs> let, let me just put that in. I really like Ron Miscavige, and he did play the trumpet for me at one point, which was… Okay, happy. good. <laughs> but it, just a, it was really weird to think that somebody is… Unpleasant, as David Miscavige had this lovely man as a father. I also, I remember, I met um, Ron Jr. in 1975 when he was in the seal, mm-hmm. and he was just really impressive young man. You know, it was really quite something. But
0: well, you know, just so you know, they did call um, Dave when they first got into Scientology um Ron Miscavige's wife um I want to say her name was Loretta um and and Ron I guess both of them they his nickname David Miscavige's nickname was Enrique in Theta because he was always just a nightmare compared to all the other kids and so it's funny that even at a very young age they they
1: pretty much had his number <laughs> and, and it it says something about genetics that that evidently this is a condition he was born with that, and even yes. having decent parents didn't change that, um, yeah. which is very sad. But uh, Jeff Jacobson wrote two excellent papers in the late 80s, I think, about Hubbard's use of other people's ideas. And mm-hmm. I used those as a platform to say, well, can I show that Hubbard knew where these things came from? So I again nice. I wrote a paper called Possible Origins for Dianetics and Scientology, which I think is a really fantastic title. And one um, of is that up somewhere? Can we link to
0: that? Yeah. Um, okay. Perfect. That, we'll, we'll we'll put a link in the description to that, as well as all these other things that we're talking about. Um, we'll put links to these in the descriptions if you guys want a deep dive. I mean, the thing about um, even the fact that we've got John here today, um, I've only been doing this since 2006, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, t- talking about Scientology and exposing <laughs> it and putting out a book. Um John's Forty been years. doing this for 40, Forty years. 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 October, yeah. yeah, so that is a wealth. I mean, there there if you if you want to know where all this came from, people have figured it out. It's not it's not like it's a mystery and it's also um, not like we're not willing to tell you about it. So whereas Scientology wants all of us to be excommunicated and not be able to say anything, the fact that Scientologists today can go on YouTube and say, where did L. Ron Hubbard get all the Scientology stuff from? And there's a place, and it says it, and it's it's very usually, I, I haven't looked at the link that we're gonna share mm-hmm. from John, but in most cases, we're citing books we're citing references we're we're showing the policy that hubbard said and and you can compare them and then you can easily see i know that when ron miscavige was showing me some of these things it wasn't like it wasn't even like he changed it in some cases in some cases he even uses the same terminology and the same um keywords and the same like he doesn't really make a big effort to cover his tracks that this is where he lifted it from. He just lifts it whole cloth and just dumps it right into something that he did. And, and, and the, for Scientologists that are watching this video right now, whenever you're reading something in Scientology and it doesn't seem like it, it cohesively fits to the other things that Hubbard has said, this is the reason because he never said any of these things. And, and his, his, you know, verbiage and the way he kind of, uh, you know, narrates and sort of writes these things. You can tell when it's just Hubbard, just like freewheeling Mm -hmm. and it's out of his brain. And then you, when it gets into a technology or it gets into a procedure or something, it's a whole different thing. And you're kind of like, it doesn't seem like the same person is writing all of these things. And that clue is the thing that is like that's the biggest i'd say it's one of the biggest clues and the contradictions so at the international headquarters you were saying where he contradicts himself that is one of the biggest problems they have at scientology international is they're always trying to go through all of hubbard's original writings and sort of conform them to what hubbard had written Mm. and when they do this they find that he consistently Contradicts himself, or he'll say this term means this yep. in one writing in 1957, and then just years later he'll say no, now this term means something different, and it doesn't mean something slightly different than what he said before. It's it's contradictory to what he said before, or is even goes against what he wrote before. That you shouldn't do that; you should now do this, and then later on he'll kind of flip flop again. So this happens throughout. Um, many of Hubbard's writings and many of Hubbard's books and bulletins and policy letters. And anyway, before I forget, forgot, I wanted to say that little bit mm. because it, it totally makes sense with what you're, w- with what you were saying about him just stealing this
2: stuff from people.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, uh, I I mean, I was hired in 93, uh, Frank Sarge Gabody, who at that time was running the Institute for research into metapsychology. Um, sued Scientology for calling saying he was plagiarizing Hubbard and then he Mm -hmm. called me in and I was like Sarge (laughs) you should have told me before you sued them you know really it would have been (laughs) helpful but the only way I can the only way I can dig you out is to prove that Hubbard plagiarized it and that's when I wrote the paper and wrote it for that for that case that he in the end okay I'm going to say it. he chickened out and he sold David Mayo to David Miscavige in return for a, an agreement that the metapsychologist would never be harassed. And um, mm-hmm. that's not good enough, really. Uh, I was a little bit annoyed about that. Um, but nonetheless, it, you know, to to look at that, the if you look at the, the how direct the lifts are and whether you can prove yeah. it. So I'll just give one example. The original Dianetics, Modern Science and Mental Health on the back cover. Published by this advertised, published by the same publisher, was a book by Dr. Nandor Fodor, who's since become an imaginary character on the television, but he really did exist, called The Search for the Beloved, uh, an investigation uh, into um, birth and the trauma of prenatal conditioning. So, right there on the back of a book that's the first book that's going to tell you about birth being a trauma that's recorded, a book that was published a year before. Is there? In fact, you can trace it back to Otto Rank of Freudian in the 1930s and to Alistair Crowley, who also talked wow. about, you know, the. It does seem
0: like whatever happened in that Jack Parsons, Alistair Crowley, whatever happened in that period of Hubbard's um, life was, were his core memories that sort of drove a lot of later things oh, that yes. he ended
1: up doing. Yeah, I I think to understand Hubbard at all, the the crucial incident is is Pasadena in 1946, where he and Jack Parsons um, perform a ceremony to incarnate the Whore of Babylon and bring about the end days under the Antichrist. And that was Hubbard in 1946. And of course, the very last thing we have from Hubbard is the OT8 policy letter that had to be withdrawn where he says yes. that he's the Antichrist. So yes. everything in between those dates for 40 years until his death, yeah. that's what's going just, on in his head.
0: Yeah. We just did a video about that uh, a few weeks ago, which was the um, the upper operating Thetan levels. Mm-hmm. We just went through them all from one to eight, um, sort of as they're known but also i we did talk about that when they first came out with ot8 it was so unbelievably wild even to the scientologists that they they, they were just like what's going on and they had to sort of back they had to back up and kind of uh rehash it and then water it down a little bit so people wouldn't lose but like they would literally go like i did not sign up for this
1: Mm. you know (laughs) and people did leave Uh, i'm yes i'm led to believe there was only a week where where that bulletin or policy letter was was in the course. And he claims to be Lucifer and the Antichrist. Um, It's absolutely consistent that, you know, as a historian of Scientology, it's absolutely consistent that he really believed that. When I first saw that issue, and it was in the 80s, so um, I think possibly even before OT8 was released, you had this bizarre uh, manuscript called Lonesome Squirrel, produced by steve Mm -hmm. fishman and fishman it would appear antonio tag done good work on this he's a con man that's what he is yeah but somehow he'd got hold of that piece of material that's the weird thing
0: about there's a what i think they're called the fishman affidavits or the Mm -hmm. fishman there's some kind of body of documents where he was like the
1: guy his psychiatrist was suing scientology for and I yeah, but it, I got on the like edge of the court case because I you know, I was around at that time and kind of looking at this weird yeah. guy. And he suddenly he's saying, Oh yeah, I, I've hung out with Hubbard. He goes under the name Jack now and he's in San Luis Obispo and you're going, Well, he was. He was in Creston. And then he gives you this material and and i I didn't believe it. So it was it took some convincing after Two people who'd done the course basically wrote down what they'd seen. And it was exactly what Fishman said.
0: Yeah. Um, And that's really the problem that I think Scientology, um, and oh, just to finish off on the Fishman thing, Mm. he was 100% a conman in the end. But how he got some of this information, which was authentic and genuine is the part where Mm -hmm. no, it's, it's all, it's, it's, it's one of these unsolved mysteries. Mm -hmm. Like, how did that happen? Like somehow he got, Jason Begay said it best. He says, um, even if it's a mouse trap, the cheese is real. OK, <laughs> the cheese is real, even though it's a trap. Mm-hmm. There's got to be some real cheese in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but Scientology, even when you were talking about these old timers and these mm-hmm. early Dianeticists mm-hmm. and early Scientologists, when we we're at the headquarters, we were always trying um, the L. Ron Hubbard personal relation personal public relations office was keeping track of all these people that had worked and um, done stuff with hubbard Mm -hmm. and we would do videos with them every once in a while and it was a way for them to kind of because some of these people knew what really happened Mm -hmm. and some of these people um knew what scientology wanted everybody to think happened And so these folks would get wined and dined and then they'd tell us stories and then we'd use them in these L. Ron Hubbard, you know, tribute videos yeah. or whatever it was over the years. But there was one time that we were interviewing one of these people and the handler from the, the public relations office had left, but we were still shooting and we were still just chatting with them and rolling camera. And then they started to get into a story that they were not supposed to tell us. and the public relations person had kind of walked in mid this and was kind of a bit confused i didn't exactly know what we were talking about and as soon as they um kind of were hip to the, the story this person was telling they're like hey you know we're gonna take a break for a second hey let's just go over here and talk for and it was sort of and i we saw it but we didn't really get anything juicy that would be mm. like oh my gosh that's great you know Every once in a while, they'd say – they'd just make an offhand comment or they'd mention something or one time drugs were mentioned by one of these people and, you know, just little hints of things and you'd be like, wait, wait, what kind of drug – what are you talking about? And it would – and also because I wasn't – I didn't go to school and also I didn't know, um, the references. Like, so if somebody said pinks and blues or, uh, pinks and, you know, reds and blues or something, you know, it didn't mean anything to me, Mm -hmm. but then later on thinking back, I go like, Oh, that must've been what the person was talking about. You know? So you, you get this idea that Scientology's they've been doing this for years where they try to kind of, um, massage the narrative so Mm -hmm. that some of these things that are, the truth don't get out from any of these people that were there. And, um, and it just seems like there's at this point, there's too many people to keep track of and to know who they're talking to and what documents are where it, it, it's, it's almost like um, the internet has sufficiently cir- uh, short circuited Hubbard's, you know, disconnection policies and his information uh control abilities mm. of Scientology. Um I I don't know I don't know how they can put the the genie back in the bottle at this point.
1: Oh, it's too late. It's it's gone. The you know the the beast was fatally wounded <clears throat> a long time ago. It's just got a lot of blood to lose because yeah. unfortunately you have the whales. You have these people who are pouring money into Scientology. I mean seeing the thing that um Alex Bonds Ross uh, I think got hold of, but but about the the meeting that he protested at Saint Hill last November, that somebody I think they'd said they'd put in fifty four million dollars, and as long as yeah, people are doing that, it it will persist. It's wild. But it's shrinking. I mean, we're down. Yeah. We must be down below twenty five thousand members of the International Association of Scientologists now, and
0: I would say below twenty five thousand members and including the C organization which is roughly you know four to five thousand people depending on how you count them up but um yeah they're definitely you're you're exactly correct on that they're definitely losing members and not getting as many new members in Uh, those numbers are abysmal compared to what they were able to do in the 60s or the 70s or even the mid 80s Mm -hmm. i'd say when the in the eighties is when it the the turn started going down. Yeah, like they were going up. Yeah. Jeff, up, Jeff I Hawkins. would say until Hub-
1: Yeah, Jeff Hawkins' until- campaign was the last successful campaign that anybody did. And of course, as he says in his his brilliant book, um, yeah. he basically threw away all of Hubbard's policies about marketing and PR and did the standard <laughs> yeah. stuff and and managed to sell this nineteen fifty book that is interminable and you know incredibly difficult to read and. Pushed it back into the bestseller list. How much they were—they were kind of cheating, as they did with Battlefield Earth, and buying up. Boxes yeah, where they had. The they
0: were buying up the copies yeah. from
1: the bookstores, yeah. <laughs> having given. <laughs> Given the publisher, St. Martin's Press, they they were given uh, a quarter of a million dollars to use as they wanted for publicity and a guaranteed sale of 40,000 hardbacks. Your usual first printing is eight to 10,000. So, of course, they were quite... and I think it was Harvey Haber who who placed the book with them, finally, from author services. And I think he'd approached 50 publishers who'd all said, no, we're not in the slightest bit interested. Another thing, as we were going along, that recognizing what hubbard has or hasn't written I'm, yeah. I'm sure that most people who've been in scientology don't realize that there's actually only one book that hubbard wrote only dianetics science of yeah. survival was written by richard demille who was wow. the i did not know that yep and how to live the own executive was written by richard demille um and Everything thereafter, there's Alpha Hart writes 8.80 and leaves and starts the wonderful Abaree magazine, which is all online and is great good fun. Um, As people left, they'd go and write something for the Abaree into the 60s. Its symbol was a squirrel. What can we say? Um, And then John (laughs) Sanborn in 54 comes in and he everything that he's published till 1978 has been through the filter of John Sanborn. And when I interviewed him, he, he said um, that in 54, Hubbard gave him him of Aisha. And he looked at him and went, Oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> you know, because it started, I am Maitreya. And then in yeah. 1974, 20 years on, John realized if he made it a question, Am I Maitreya? It might sound dignified enough to publish. And, and so, okay. <laughs> yes. And I'd just like to answer that question because I can give you an absolute answer yeah. Was he Maitreya? No, he wasn't because Maitreya <laughs> takes all of humanity into Nirvana with him when he goes. So, yes, another failed mission for Ron Hubbard. What can I say?
2: Totally.
0: You know, it's so funny that you say that because when I heard the story about the, the couple that had written the study tech. Mm-hmm. And um, then they'd given it to Hubbard like, hey, we've got these things, the three barriers to study. And then they were like, oh, we can't wait to see what he says. You know, like they were very – they thought they were being good Scientologists – and that they were doing him this huge favor and that he would be like, oh my God, I can't believe you discovered this and da 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 And it was just like, oh, there's this new thing, guys. It's called the the three barriers to study. It's going to be the basis of all Scientology study technology. It was like, yeah, we wrote it. It's like, yeah, nobody's ever going to know it. it was you. <laughs> it was just like, what? But um, the other thing that I find funny about that is that when Hubbard had given, he had written all the way up to OT8, and he had developed these operating Thetan levels. But there was nine through fifteen that were never written, and and the last years of his life were led to believe that is when he was doing this work, and he would give us these operating Thetan levels. And instead, he passes away and what do they release that we don't we've never seen that hubbard's written they release um mission earth a science fiction series that's 10 volumes now the ot levels they may be maybe 20 30 pages each if you just gathered up everything now now he's written thousands and thousands of pages and none of them are these operating factin levels you go like Guys, how is this the how is this the narrative that your church is telling you that mm-hmm. he did this, but he didn't do this? Like, wouldn't this have been more important than all this spa- ten volumes of space porn? Like, it, it's it's one of those things where you're like, this doesn't make sense, guys. There's there's pieces to this story um, that are not true.
1: <laughs> yeah, th- and there there are very few pieces that are true. Um, so, Mission Earth, um, I interviewed uh, Robert Vaughan Young, who wrote Mission Earth. Um, that is to say that he had all of this text dumped on him, and he had to make yes. it into 10 novels somehow. He also wrote the Rocky Mountain News, our Ron Hubbard interview of 1983, which is a fascinating document, because in it, you have a real clue to Ron Hubbard, which is so easy to miss. There's a question, what's your favorite work of fiction? And Vaughan, on Hubbard's behalf, wrote, uh, yes. you haven't asked me what my favorite work of nonfiction is. It's 12 Against the Gods by William Belitho. And I, in Blue Sky, I suggest that people read this book. This is Hubbard's yes. favorite book. And it's about 12 people who basically did something significant But the didn't care whether what they did was positive or negative. I'm pretty sure that Woodrow Wilson, who made it as the 12th, would have been replaced by Adolf Hitler if it had been written 10 years later.
0: And yeah, I was going to say is that have anything to do with the majestic 12 is that the same thing? I, I don't know that.
1: No. Majestic 12. Oh,
0: the majestic 12, that's like a uh, that's a big kind of thing in that. Y- it's funny that you mention that because I was just watching a video the other day that mentioned the same thing. It's it's sort of like um the shriners and um you know different um, I can't Ma- Freemasons and the Majestic Twelve, and it's sort of this idea that there's these twelve people that are sort of c- controlling all of this stuff, and and the members are these key prominent people that are either Masons or they're Shriners or they have some sort of you know New World Order involvement mm-hmm. that they they're the this, Illuminati this body. and Hubbard. If you if you there's a lot of that throughout Scientology mm-hmm. that. um it's the World Bank and it's the these guys the and the, the APA. Yeah, the APA and the AMA and all these guys are all out to get Hubbard and and the whole Guardian's office, which is now the the uh, Office of Special Affairs that were, um, you know, the Guardian's office was convicted of perpetrating the largest infiltration into the United States government in its history. And not only – I say always the United States government. It wasn't only the United States
1: government. No, they, they convicted in criminal France.
0: Yeah, they had infiltrated uh, other intelligence agencies and other governments in, I want to say, at least 10 or 15 other countries, whether it was just stealing documents or had a a spy there or just trying to get some information out of out of them in some way. But Scientology always had this sort of us against them mentality that's just kind of hard baked into Mm -hmm. it from Hubbard that we've got to. We've got to steal our sense, uh, 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 steal ourselves against these outside forces because they want us—they um, want us gone—and they're going to accuse us of doing all these dirty, dastardly things. Which we're doing, but um, but you know it's sort of this. It's a common thread throughout the all of the decades of Scientology.
1: As, as Ron Hubbard said, the criminal accuses others of things he himself is doing. And let's just uh, run that past you again. L. Ron Hubbard accuses others the, of things he himself is doing. Protest. <laughs> though, uh, what is it? Though, uh, thou do- dost the over just yeah
0: yeah yes.
2: <laughs> oh,
0: but so that was the other thing I wanted to ask hmm. you. So you you write the you decide you're gonna write the book. Hmm. Um, you interview all these people, you get everything together, you 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 how did you get a publisher how did you publish the
1: book? Well, I, I approached fifty publishers, eleven of them wrote back and said they'd like to publish the book. And uh, Collins, who at the now HarperCollins at the time were the largest publisher in the world, held it for three yeah. months with an editor there desperate to publish it in the in the first version but the same thing came back from all 11 that wanted to publish it which was we won't make any money doing this they'll sue us and i had a yeah. indeed a letter from neville spearman who was the head of neville spearman publishing uh, who'd published the mindbenders by uh cyril vosper who i came to know reasonably well and th- they sold one hundred eight thousand copies of the mindbenders it was a bestseller um but um Spearman. They wrote were being me.
0: sued by anybody to, to offset those yeah, uh, things. Spearman
1: hadn't made any profit on it. And he wrote back to me and said he'd love to publish the book, but, but there was no money in it. And he signed himself off. And I had this image of this man in his Savile Row fitted suit, you know, sat there, his pinstripe, or probably with a, a lovely Eton accent or something, you know Uh, because he signed himself off Death to the Evil Cult, Neville Spearman. (laughs) So I couldn't get a publisher. And after a couple of years, when Russell Miller came along in in January 86 and said that Sunday Times wanted him to find Ron Hubbard and write about that, and he gave me a check for £2,000. And I'd been doing this for a couple of years, and nobody had given me any kind of money for doing it. So that was very welcome. He hired me as his researcher. And Then we found a week later that Hubbard was dead. And the Sunday Times said, well, go ahead. You know, it's an interesting story. And I think we had three front pages out of it. Um, And at the time, Sunday Times was the biggest distribution newspaper in the UK. And he got a book deal. And he signed me up for, for researching and paid me some money. And I sort of thought, I can't get my book published. the the purpose of writing the book was i I never imagined i'd make any money from it and that proved to be true that's still true to this day (laughs) um but so he might as well have it and I, i let him have the manuscript i have his annotated version of it that it came round to me eventually which is kind of weird um and it he russell called me up one day and he's he'd traveled all over the world for the sunday times and he said i'm being followed everywhere i go and i've got the names of the the private detectives can you check with lyle stewart who'd published ben Corridon's elrond hubbard messiah or madman can you check with him to see if he's being followed by the same people yeah what he didn't know was that i'd never spoken to lyle stewart so so i you know he just presumed i must know him so i phoned lyle up and he was a just a Weirdly eccentric human being. Um, He he ran the first uh, gay novel series in the U.S. Birch Lane Press. He published books (laughs) about the IRS and gambling, which is what he liked to do with his time. And he hated the IRS. He told me that he'd been sued a hundred times and he'd won ninety nine of the cases. You know, so come and get me. You know, he's that kind of very different type of human being from me, I must say. And on the phone so i phone him up and say you know oh, i'm john atak and before saying anything else he says have you written a book about scientology so i said yes and he said i'll publish it <laughs> <laughs> and then he came over and signed contracts with me and he said i am i've actually sold the company <laughs> for 12 million dollars to this guy steven Schragis, and i'm signing you up and it's his problem now <laughs> And Schreagis very ah, nearly that's amazing. very nearly stopped publication because they wanted to edit it severely. And I Yeah. And he said, well, we'll just drop it then. And then we got sued and we lost the case. Blue Sky, only two books have ever been banned in the history of the United States. The first was Victor Marchetti's CIA. And you can understand why that was a bit sensitive. The second was sure. a Piece of Blue Sky. And th- we got that reversed at appeal because I had the same attorney, Mel Wolf, that Victor Marchetti had had, and I'm pretty sure that when we lost the case, the company said, you, "When did you lose it? Because you lost 89. it in
0: 189. Um, what when did you? Okay, and then it was overturned on appeal uh, later on.
1: Yeah, that's right. There were 17 counts against us, and they
0: 1995. They
1: were, 1990 was was when we actually got it out. Yeah, the, the, so we won the case in 90. Um, okay. Um, and it, it, it was ba- basically that they'd, oh, for, for about more than six months, there'd been a private investigator who had wormed his way into my circle. And he kept saying, you know, that he wanted to help me publish the book and he wanted to help me publish the book. Yeah. And I, as I say, I'd given it um, to, to Russell by this time. And I'd pretty much given up on publishing it. So when he said, "Look, I'll give you thirty thousand yeah. pounds if I can publish it under my own name," and I was sort of sounds a bit weird, but I could do with the money. And uh, I made the mistake of letting him have a copy. It took months, but and
2: mm. then
1: bang, it that that version turned up in court. And by the time it turned up, we'd already realised that we couldn't quote from Hubbard's diaries uh, or from. Yeah. intelligence orders and harassment orders because of this bizarre ruling in the U.S. courts over J.D. Salinger and his yeah. personal letters. They were available in a university collection. You could read them, but it was ruled that he could still make money from publishing them, so a biographer couldn't quote yeah. from them. That was ultimately overturned, thankfully. But by the yeah. time blue sky got to court i'd already revised the 60 paragraphs and paraphrased them so all this stuff that they'd worked out that they could get me for was gone um yeah and the the new edition the let's sell these people a piece of blue sky has all 60 of the original quotations back plus another 40 for for good measure you know i thought we'll beef it out a little bit nice
0: (laughs) <laughs> yeah let's update it yeah. and it is
1: incredible that, that you want that's amazing you want his words and you want to know where he said it you know as i said there are 150 contributors to to my book but f- fully half of what's in there comes directly from things ron hubbard said and so he yeah. he you know if you look carefully there's a you know for example that there's um september 1950 recording called introduction to dianetics which became available i think in the 2007 golden something of tech
0: i was going to say that's that's one of the um the lectures that's in that kit that i was telling you right that is the that is one of those lectures yep. that they were like, "Hey, let's put this in with this," and then that way they can listen to a two-hour tape and not have to read a, you know, a, a, a book that they're just never going to understand in and the end of that, even after reading the whole thing.
1: Whoever approved the release of that um, recording, of, of course, that was I, David Miscavige. <laughs> yeah, I, I got his college grade sheets, which said not only didn't he study nuclear physics. Nuclear physics is not molecular and atomic physics. It's a quite different world. He studied molecular and atomic physics, and he got a grade F. And all I got was the college grade sheets. And what Scientologist is going to believe that? Then Hubbard says it in a lecture. I failed atomic and molecular physics. And it's sort of... So you find that because he contradicts himself so much... And there's there's something to this that that I think is quite fascinating. In one lecture, he talks about having become addicted to phenobarbital. The reference is in my paper, Never Believe a Hypnotist, the page number exactly what lecture. And he says he made himself a guinea pig in an experiment to come off phenobarbital. Now, I got his medical records, uh, Veterans Administration records, which showed that he was taking phenobarbital, which is a barbiturate drug. Yeah. What was interesting to me was that every now and then, as in 1950, Hubbard would tell the truth. didn't happen often. Usually you'd get a story. But this, and I started to go, oh, it's a close relative of sodium pentothal. So he's taking a drug that makes people spill the beans and then going and giving a lecture every now and then. And he admits he'd been addicted to this drug. So there's there's no doubt about it. I mean, and, and that whole thing with drugs that if you go to, one science mental health um there's a, a paragraph there about you know the safest drug is marijuana and alcohol is the most dangerous drug and and this and you just gloss over it you don't notice it because there's so much verbiage and he's of course recommending amphetamines so the whole yeah. campaign against ritalin by scientology that's the drug that he recommends if you have to grab hold of anything grab hold of benzogen yeah. he says
0: so well, the other thing was that when he passed away in 1986, he had antipsychotic medications in Fist- his Fistorial. bloodstream. Yeah. So you're like, he can take them, <laughs> but we've got a whole entire front group that's just dedicated to telling people that you should never do that. And so it's sort of like you're, you, when you learn these things, and, and that's what I, I am a strong believer that Scientologists are operating with not enough information because they're only – they either they were born into it or that the, like they're a second generation or a third or just a generational Scientologist that they were just raised in it. So they don't know anything different. And one of the things that you're – it's taught in the very – early stages of Scientology when you learn about the p- potential trouble sources and the suppressive persons you learn that Scientology is doing so much good that that people are going to attack and they're going to pick it apart and you should never listen to those people mm-hmm. because they want to suppress you and they want to they want you to do do bad they don't want you to do good like Scientology does so you you're programmed very early on to, to put those blinders on. And so all the information, your only information source on Scientology is Scientology. I, I, it's conveniently works out that way somehow. But, um, so I, I'm, 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 I'm a big proponent of let's give Scientologists as much information as possible that they're not going to be able to get in Scientology. And if possible, we can compare it to some things that are said in Scientology. So like the thing we just said about the drugs or um, the thing about the study tech or any of these things, a Scientologist hearing that, it's just enough. Like they, they, they might not care about the drug thing. But the study tech thing could make them just lose their mind and get angry. Or they might not care about the study tech thing, but the drug thing mm-hmm. might be the thing. So I figure if we do, if we just hit it from as many angles and just get as much information out there, just documenting it, that's going to help these Scientologists um, short circuit that blinders mm-hmm. thing because the blinders thing. Not only it makes it so they don't even seek out that information, but if it does manage to get to them, they've already got a, a mechanism in, in in their thought process that he immediately puts that into their you know their garbage their mind's garbage can. Like, nope, not valuable information, not reliable, throw it away. And that is the thing where when you were talking about the hypnotism, I really do think. And when I explain Scientology to someone who has no idea, I say they basically. They give you, they tell you, you have all these problems that you don't even know you have. And then when you're learning, when you agree that maybe one of these 10 problems, I kind of do think I do have this problem. I say, okay, we're going to help you fix that. And that's this ruin That when you then go in to handle the ruin, then you find out you've got another 15 problems you never knew, but they're going to also help you navigate all those. And they, at at that point, they give you the deck of cards and they say, here's the deck of cards. You're going to build this house of cards around yourself, but we're going to help you do it. We're going to give you everything you need to do it, but you're going to do all the heavy lifting. And then we're going to tell you, don't listen to anybody else. And then you won't know how to unbuild the house. And, and people Because you're, you're in it. And even though you built it, you don't know how to get out. So I really think when you can, even if you can just knock down one of those cards of the house, that helps the Scientologist. Not only, it's a weird thing. In order for them to leave Scientology, they have to justify. They have to make an excuse Of why they're leaving. They can't just leave and say, this doesn't make any sense. And this is, this guy's a con man. It has to be, oh, it's David Miscavige. He perverted it. He's the one who did the, he's the bad guy. So I'm leaving because of him. I'm not leaving because of Scientology. I'm not leaving because of Elrond Hubbard. I'm leaving because of David Miscavige and he's a bad guy and he's doing, he's beating people and he's just trying to get money. It's okay if they leave because of that. And so it's this weird thing you have to get around. And most of them, to be fair, when they do leave and they live in the real world and they're not, you know, getting the constant top ups on the hypnotism, that then they sort of come out of the fog. And then they – a, a large majority of them I, then realize, I'm not, oh, Scientology's nonsense, Hubbard's nonsense. Yeah. But there's a lot of people that go many decades where they only get to the David Miscavige is bad or even Scientology is bad – but they still think, oh no! But Hubbard, if Hubbard would have been around and was able to complete his re, you know, and you're just like so. There's there's sort of levels to this thing that you, I don't know that there's there. It doesn't seem to be like there's just a set way. Let's do it this way, and you could deprogramming these people. You kind of have to come to it from, you know, all sorts of angles. That's that's been my experience
1: mm. at least. It it's you know it. I've not just worked around Scientology in the last 40 years. You'll be pleased to know I have done other things and had something of a life. Yes. But during that period, I've dealt directly in the recovery, not the escape from Scientology, but the recovery of about 600 people. And to do that, once I'd got the biography of Hubbard and the history of Hubbard and Scientology down, which was 30-something years ago, I then started in the late 80s, trying to understand the psychology. What, what, how did this work? And Conway and Siegelman, in the book Snapping, reviewing various cults, said Scientology may have the most debilitating set of rituals of any cult in America. They said, if you're in the Krishnas or the Moonies, three to six months later, you'll be fine. You'll be back. With Scientology unaided, 12 and a half years. That was their reckoning. Yes. I wrote to them. I saw that. They
0: published that in 1990. That. that was To me, that was fascinating. That, that, that's, it says a lot. They've it, said it more really, since.
1: Um,
0: yeah, it's, it's literally 10 times more it, dangerous than any other, it, that, it, that anybody's ever kind of codified or figured out. It's 10 times worse.
1: It's the most elaborate system of mind control ever devised by the most litigious group in the history of the world. No other group has filed as many lawsuits as Scientology. And I started to, you know, I went into the conventional psychology world to understand what the psychs thought. And you go, ah, phobia induction. Here's the first layer. I was in Scientology. (laughs) The brain is a switching system. I don't want to know anything about it. It's too scary. (laughs) Then you find out about cognitive dissonance and you find that. Yeah. Even there, that when Leon Festinger wrote about cognitive dissonance, he was—and most people don't notice this—he was writing about a Scientologist, the um, this the cult, uh, Marion Keech's group, um, which he wrote about in "When Prophecy Fails." Uh, it's a 1950s group. Marion Keech was received channeling messages from aliens, and she was going to leave the planet with her followers when the mothership came to get them. And he predicted, and he was right about this, that the mothership wouldn't arrive. Yeah. And he predicted <laughs> that those of her followers that went to the hilltop would remain committed. Those uh-huh. who didn't go would leave, but those who went yeah. would remain committed. And this is cognitive dissonance, that the stronger the evidence you produce, the more it rigidifies the belief. When I went back to Conway yeah. Su- Su- and because I'd written a piece and I'd I'd said something about them only interviewing three Scientologists, and Tony Ortega, bless him, decided to publish and talk to them rather than telling me I'd made a mistake. Um, they didn't do yeah. 33 <laughs> for the second book, three uh-huh. for the first, but 33 for the second. But I went to them, you know, you said 12 and a half years. Would you agree with me that, in fact, the majority of Scientologists will not recover unaided? And they said yes. Oh,
0: 100%. Unaided. Yeah, that's, yeah, you're right. Unaided that exactly that's what i was just going to say if the chances of recovery are not that great but they're not that great even aided
1: well there are ways and means as i say i've dealt with about 600 people in doing this and i well i understand but 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 the approach is not not nothing
0: yeah exactly it's and and, every
1: every person you deal with there's no kind of standard technology route And what's more, with most people, and this is what really annoys me, it only takes an afternoon. With most people, it's possible to get them to understand what has glued them to this thing and start the process, which, of course, they will take on. You don't do it for somebody. You don't sit them in an auditing session with an e-meter. And the first part of the process is very simple. Um, Yeah. i Few years, well, eleven years ago, actually, I I had a conversation with with a woman in Australia, uh, who had been horribly treated as a child. She, you know, she'd been as a child by a Scientologist stepfather who, subsequently, was convicted. There's no doubt about this, and then it had been covered up. Scientology, yeah. You know, she was 11. She went to the cops, and it was covered up.
0: I just have to bleep that word, just so you know. So, okay. I'm just saying, Yeah, I'm going to bleep that one, but let's not, if we say essay or if we just say she, attack, that's.
1: A- yeah. Okay. She, she was, she was assaulted by her stepfather. Yeah. Um, and there's no doubt of that. And when she first talked to me, I, I, Steve Kinane, the brilliant journalist who wrote fair game, the history of, of Scientology in Australia, which is a remarkable book. Um, he came to me. And I was helping him with research for that. And he said he'd, he'd met this woman and could I help her? You know, that she'd had this terrible treatment. At 16, she joined the sea organization. She had five years in that. And then she she left and she did a medical degree and her life started coming apart. And I thought I was going to be talking to a woman of, you know, 23 or something. She was 37. She'd grown up in Scientology. She didn't have any comparison. She was obviously intelligent enough to get a degree. In fact, she was on a master's program when she quit her education. Um, But she said to me, is it true that reality is an agreement, as Hubbard says? And my response was, yeah, if you're the hypnotist, reality is an agreement. But for the rest of us, (laughs) it's out there, whether you like it or not.
0: Reality is reality, whether you agree with it or
1: not. And it's not, as (laughs) Thomas said, it's not us chanting space particle position, space particle position. What nonsense! The next week, when I talked with her, she was jubilant. She just used scented laundry conditioner for her washing, Uh (laughs) and we hadn't talked about the hygiene hats in the organisation or any of that. And it meant that the process had worked challenge a Hubbard idea and discover that he's wrong about one thing and then just keep moving from there. But if you don't excise the belief, if you don't remove the belief, it's kind of the software that you're still running on those beliefs yeah so people will change the words and they'll, they'll now believe in mm-hmm. karma instead of believing in the overt motivator sequence And when you say to them yes. you mean vipaka don't you You don't mean karma they go what are you talking about so well karma means action vipaka means reaction you've certainly read the hindu and buddhist texts on this haven't you no i just believe it's true what goes around comes around and you're like okay <laughs> yeah. i don't mind if people end up agreeing with hubbard's ideas. I just want them to think their way to it rather than believe their way to it. Totally.
0: You know, that's such a good point because that was the other thing I was going to say is that in Scientology, even if it doesn't sound right or it doesn't make sense to you, you just go, okay, I get it. You know, like, uh, yeah, you don't, you can't you're not allowed to challenge the ideas or you're not allowed to say, oh, I don't think that happened. Or I don't think that's, you can't do that. Mm. But whether or not you accept it as like, okay, like, am I gonna, am I gonna operate my life with that? And then when you leave, for me, the trouble I have is I don't know what, um, Scientology things were from Hubbard or were from something he stole. So I just tell people, like, if they ask me, like, well, you don't believe in the communication formula? And I'm like, okay, first of all, people were communicating well before Hubbard showed up. So first how of all... How do you know that, know how he? Yeah. So, <laughs> so I say... If you believe that speaking to somebody in a way that's understandable to them so that you can convey a thought and then they can understand it and ha- then have a conversation with you in the reverse order, I go, well, that's obviously uh, that's something that you can ab- observe and you can understand. The fact that Hubbard attached a whole bunch of significances to a lot of those parts of that thing that's Cause happening distance and effects. then said he – yeah. That he came up with it. I go, that's ridiculous. <laughs> okay. He didn't come up with people having conversations. And also if somebody says something and you don't say anything back and then they're like, well, I'm not going to talk to this guy. Cause he doesn't answer, you know, like, yeah, I'm pretty sure people knew about this kind of stuff before Hubbard. So then I say, instead of trying to, instead of trying to disprove all the things in Scientology that may be workable to a person if you just talk about the ab- ab- absurd things like we're talking about here today, like, oh, don't do drugs. But if you're Hubbard, you can do whatever drugs you want. Or, you know, these sort of things are, or even math. Ma- I find math is also very useful that you say, well, your goal is to clear the planet. Mm-hmm okay, good. So that means every person in Scientology is eventually going to be to the state of clear and no longer be effect of their reactive mind. I go, okay, good. That's what, that's it. That's the over, that is the overriding goal of all of Scientology is to clear the planet. I go, you guys can't even clear a zip code where the most Scientologists in the world live. How are you going to clear the planet? OK, that there's the math doesn't work. It's not a it's not a solvable problem. There's no there's no way the way you're doing it. You're going to mathematically solve that no. equation. So to me, I go, so why even bother? OK, why don't you come on? Let's go to the movies, you know, live your life. Stop giving these folks money, you know, <laughs> just do your thing. You know, if you need help in in your life, uh, opposed to what Scientology tells you, not every person in the real world is uh, a drug or a thief or a prostitute or, you know, a criminal. They're
1: they're, dead in the head.
0: Yeah. There's plenty of really nice folks Mm -hmm. roaming around that you can be friends with and they will support you in your endeavors and you can support them in their endeavors. And it's, you know, there's a whole world out there. And, um, but yes, uh, before I forget, um, John has also written a lot of other books since he wrote this piece of blue. Is it, fi- is it, what's the total use? Five different books. You- I count it by ISBN. So even when you said a, pl- a piece of blue sky, let's sell them. That's another mm. ISBN. So yeah. that's another
1: book. So is it six books that you've written then based on that? Uh, in print at the moment. Um, uh, there's uh Scientology the cult of greed, which which is, Um, also available as an audio book, an e-book. And that is to give to people who have no experience of Scientology. It doesn't have any of the difficult terms that we've used today. Um, And it's got, to me, the most damning evidence against Scientology, like uh, Hubbard's 1947 letter to the Veterans Administration is printed as it was, with him begging. Where where he's like, please help me. Please help me. (laughs) Begging for psychiatric treatment which he was not given.
2: Um,
0: Yeah. That is another interesting point. And a lot of these documents and a lot of these things that John has uncovered, I've been through a ton of these things. And if you read those... And these things are in Hubbard's own writing, in his own voice. It's, it's a, it's official. Uh, they're official sort of requests that are being done within the military and the government and these sort of things. And he's begging for these things that he essentially a year or two later is saying these things are the worst thing you could possibly do. Yeah. He's begging for them in, in a letter for himself. To, yeah. to get himself help yeah. he's willing to do these things even though when he's now the messiah of all this nonsense he's saying please don't do that um and I, my take on that is because well if you do that then you're not going to need my uh my snake oil if you go and get the good stuff <laughs> and
1: <laughs> or the stuff that might work <laughs> and all of the people are professionally qualified in the field of the mind are excluded so yeah finding a you know, somebody who's had the phobia induced in them in Scientology that that the psychs are this great conspiracy that, that is trying to destroy all life, according to Hubbard. And then we have this letter and
0: um, oh, it's hard to get get the light. If you send me a copy, I can put it up. I'll put it up on the screen. Yeah, great. Um, so people can see, but then also we'll link, I'll link again, we'll link to this book um so you guys can uh you guys can pick a copy
1: of this up. Uh you have you have this on Kindle as well? Can people get this book digitally? Yeah, t ebook, print book, and and you can hear it in my lovely dulcet tones. Um doing my ASMR version of it, you know. Perfect. Um but I mean in this letter he says, and it's signed El Hubbard at the bottom, um after trying and failing for two years to regain my equilibrium in civil life, I am utterly unable to approach anything like my own competence. Um, my last physician informed me that it might be very helpful if I were to be examined and perhaps treated psychiatrically or even by a psychoanalyst. Um, Toward the end of my service, I avoided out, and you can tell this is Hubbard, Toward the end of my service, I avoided out of pride any mental examinations, hoping that time would balance a mind which I had every reason to suppose was seriously affected. I cannot account for nor rise above long periods of moroseness and suicidal inclinations, and have newly come to realise that I must first triumph above this before I can hope to rehabilitate myself at all. Would you please help me?
0: (laughs) It's amazing. It's also amazing that during that time was also, I want to say that that time period when that letter was written, um, according to the Scientology narrative, he had been healing himself and he had um, been um, crippled by the war, blinded,
1: And crippled with injured optic nerves and physical injuries to hip and back. And I quote exactly. And when somebody says physical injuries, I start going, is there some other kind of injury to a hip or back? This is a con man.
2: Yeah. That's what 665
1: my philosophy he's saying that. Where in 1957 (laughs) he said he was down in on July the twenty fifth, forty five. He was in Hollywood and beat up three petty officers. End of the war, I was crippled and blinded. And in a Look magazine article in November, December, nineteen fifty, he admits he had no, he didn't see combat, and he had no war wounds. His eyes had been hurt by the flash of a gun, and he'd fallen down a ladder, and that becomes crippled and blinded. Yeah, with injured. So hot this october, is the kind knows, of.
2: You know.
1: But these are the kind of things
0: when we when I left um in um 2005 um i just didn't want to be in the sea org anymore Mm. i could care less about scientology i I literally was like i was just working i grew up in it Mm. i never signed up i never wanted to do any of this stuff i was just it was the thing if you're a scientology child and you're brought up in a scientology upbringing and you go to scientology schools they're all grooming you to become a Sea Org member. And if you don't become a Sea Org member, you're sort of an outcast, or you you have to become a very successful Scientologist um, or a Sea Org member. Those are sort of the two um, paths, uh, uh, acceptable paths. If you don't end up in Scientology, you don't e- do any of this stuff, then you're, you're kind of out of the club. Mm-hmm. And when I finally then joined the Sea Org in 1989, 1990, go all the way to 2005, I get out, and I started reading these type of things mm-hmm. that you had exposed and you had written about, and this even that letter where he talks about, um, can I get this care and those sort of things. To me, I instantly I was just like, oh, it was this is a con. This whole thing was just a, a big giant bunch of nonsense like this dude never did anything that he said he did and he there's not it's all it's all just make believe and I and and so for me it was very easy for me to sort of deprogram like you said in an afternoon it, I, it literally I watched the South Park episode <laughs> I watched that and that was really I up until that point I didn't even care about Scientology it was sort of like whatever I'm not there mm-hmm. I'm not going back. So I don't even care what they believe, anything about what they they're doing over there. But Claire here, she's OT5. She's been doing all this technical. She is, she's, it's part, it's part of her because she's been studying it and doing it for so long. I haven't even read Dianetics. To this day, I haven't read Dianetics. Shame on you. Um, so and I hadn't read I hadn't read any of the other books. See, I think I had to read most of the what they call the Introduction to Scientology Ethics Mm. book, because I had to do a course where you have to read that book. So I kind of read that. It was a tiny little book,
1: wasn't it? It was before it became a massive tome. Yeah,
0: Exactly. And I've read maybe some, most of that one, but almost everything in that book, you read somewhere else in Scientology. It's a compilation of other Hubbard writers. As indeed are all the books. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So but um, but what was I saying? Oh, so so when I when they said when the South Park thing happened, and I looked, I'm watching the the show, and Claire is standing in the doorway off to the side while I'm watching it, and I'm I'm checking in with her like, <laughs> is this
1: is this really is this for three? real?
0: Like, is this because it says at the bottom of the screen, Scientologists, Scientologists really <laughs> believe, actually believe bro. this? It says that. I'm thinking like they're saying it like it's satire but they have it up on the screen. No, this is actually what they believe. This is real. And I'm looking at her going, yeah. And she's basically saying pretty much there's some things in there that have been kind of, you know, adapted for a a cartoon (laughs) and TV, but pretty much everything they're saying is what is in the, in the Hubbard writings. And I'm thinking to myself, you like, I've never even heard about any aliens until now I'm not even in Scientology. And then I start, and then I go, Oh, I'm going to go online and I'm going to look. And then I start finding these things, the letters and the, Mm -hmm. Oh, he had drugs in his system in 1986 when they did the autopsy. Oh, he was trying to get this. Oh, he, and I just go like, Oh yeah, it's all make believe. And because I worked for the production, um, you know, arm of Scientology, golden era productions. And we made mo- That's all we ever did was make believe. We had guys, we would shoot one of these, we called them quote videos. And it's where L- there would be a lecture and we'd take a little snippet of it. And then we'd put a, we'd make a little video, little uh, of vignettes and little things. And we'd kind of show what he's talking about in the lecture. And we'd show it in a video. We called them quote videos. Mm-hmm. And we had at least I want to say two or three different people that could write in LRH's hand and L Ron Hubbard's handwriting. Mm-hmm. So We could make whatever we wanted L Ron Hubbard to say. We could have somebody just write it and then you could say it. And at that time at Golden Air Productions, we were doing a film where we were supposed to use L Ron Hubbard's voice, but he hadn't recorded the recording that we were supposed to use or he had said i will record this and he never mm-hmm. did or it was a bad recording or mm-hmm. something and so the the possibility of just cobbling together his words to get him to say that was being entertained and was being researched mm-hmm. like how good could we do this and how good can or can we get another person that can talk just like him and just get him to say whatever mm-hmm. we want him to say When you're doing that, and you're like, "Oh no, this guy's writings and this guy's um, voice and recordings are all sacred," but at the same time, you know, the same people that are saying that are saying, "Well, if we need to make him say something, we'll make him say something." Mm. You know, then you just, but it just gets into the the possibilities are endless Mm -hmm. on what did he say if you're if you're going to rely on the Scientologist to tell you what he said, it could. They literally could make him say whatever they want him to have said.
1: And the end will justify and the means. Yeah, and that's problematic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it, i mean it's a it's a crazy other world. And, and Mark Fisher and um Dennis Grady have, you know, call it the the layering of the onion. And that was something we started to see as soon as I came out, I realized, oh, first of all, you decide that the organization is dangerous and unpleasant and so now you want to be with the independents and then you you get there and you kind of find that that they don't really want to apply all of the policy because it's just insane there's so much of it it's impossible and so then it's sort of well we the ethics text we don't do the harassment stuff so we're not doing that anymore and we're not gathering information on you anymore and it layers come off and then you get well hubbard was actually he was a liar there, there isn't any possibility yeah. otherwise because he contradicted himself yeah. um it was explained yeah. to me uh, um by the former commanding officer of saint hill foundation um that when i said well look you know he says here he was crippled and blinded, and here he beat up three petty officers she said well that's easy he had two bodies so uh, i hadn't worked that one out i must say and then when i said that he see, it is a simple solution. The simple solution is that he had cloned himself. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the horrifying thought is there could be an infinite number of Elram Hubbards. Oh. <laughs> yes. And then we're all in trouble. Um, and they all have body thetans they can't get rid of. <laughs> you may know the answer to this question, which, which I have, which is what became of the tech films in 1977 at the Quinta Hubbard Makes all of these dreadful little films. I only saw a couple of them. Yeah. They all seem to disappear. What what happened to them? Well, all of the ones that he had,
0: um, that Elron Hubbard produced, um, when I got there in nineteen ninety to Golden Era Productions, they were still showing his films in organizations on Super Eight films, which were like cartridges. Mm. And they were also showing. This is in nineteen ninety. The CD has been out. The compact disc and DVDs have been out. I want to say as of this time, okay. And they are producing Elron Hubbard. Yeah, they're producing Elron Hubbard uh, technical training films that are on Super Eight millimeter film cartridges and um, and sixteen millimeter film reels and all of the ones that were available at that time were either produced by Hubbard or written by mm-hmm. Hubbard. And I want to say there was only maybe about 15 of these that were floating around. He had written a total, I want to say it's, tw- it's either 26 or 29. How you count them is a little different on who you talk to. Cause there's these things called drill films. That's just a copy of the film. It's just an edited version yeah. of a full film. Um, but regardless, when I was there from 1990 until the early 2000s, we shot, produced, edited, and had ready for release every single film that L. Ron Hubbard had written as the training films. Uh-huh. And then there was another 50 films that he had written that they were called PSMPS, the Public Scientology Motion Picture Series. And those were meant to get people into Scientology. And we had only we had only made um, a handful of those. Those were almost impossible to produce because Hubbard had only written treatments for them. He not all of them had, were a flushed out script, yeah. um, but um, but he had written them, and we could never get the scripts approved by David Miscavige. So we had we we spent hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars paying Scientology writers mm-hmm. to write these films. And write scripts from dialogue and the sets and the props and all that stuff. Uh, maybe even um, over a million dollars to 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 script these things. And they were paid, many of them were paid many of thousands of dollars to write them, but they would never get their final approval checks that it was approved because David Miscavige would never ever approve them. He just I I he just would they were always never good. And
1: of course he worked as a cameraman on on the original that came to films. So yes, we redid every film.
0: Every, I want to say every frame of film that David Miscavige or L. Ron Hubbard shot for the f- for these films. We redid at Golden Air Productions. We reshot and redid what they did because it was. I mean, I don't. I'm trying to think of a movie that it's like. Um, what's a really really cult classic? like just bad movie. Um well battlefield earth is pretty bad. You
1: know
0: it was it was Battlefield Earth makes these things look like uh like home movies. I mean these movie they're I mean technically um a lot of these films are are fine production quality and and technically how they were produced is great. But they're just it's it's L. Ron Hubbard's words in film version. So it's only going to be it's 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 it's, it's only going to be as good as its bones and the bones are L. Ron Hubbard. Right. So it's not good. Um And also um, they're filled with suppressives. So even when we would shoot these over the years, we'd have to double back every once in a while and redo a film because the main star is now a declared suppressive person. And so we kept having to either do redo scenes or, or digitally replace people. And it was always, we were always having to revise them before we could finish them. We would have to double back even the film that L. Ron Hubbard shot, which is this film called, um, it's uh, the the pro t- the professional T.R.S. course, and it's the story of this guy Joe Howard, and and um, Joe Howard is a Scientologist that's got to do these professional training routines to be able to come become a great auditor, and um, Joe Howard is played by a gentleman, a long, very long time Sea member named Dan Kuhn. Mm-hmm. And Dan Kuhn is now a suppressive person that's not in Scientology. And he is the star of the film that was the last film that was left that L. Ron Hubbard had shot and produced and was going to be just never, were never. It was always stated, it was always told, explained to us, that film will never, ever mm-hmm. be replaced. That film will never be redone because that L. Ron Hubbard did it and da 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 And so that film was uh retouched and was the audio was restored you know we did a lot there was a lot of restoration work for that film but even then there was like 10 people in that film that were that were already declared suppressives and so because this the edict was we could never just do the film over from from scratch we digitally shot um we shot these people new people new actors in the exact same costumes and the exact same positions and the c- same camera frame and the same camera angle and the same camera lens and everything was matched so we could digitally mm. replace them. And then Dan Kuhn was declared a suppressive yeah. person. And then they just said, That's <laughs> it. We're we're out. They tapped out. And they and I, and the only reason I know this is because Mitch Brisker who was the director that I worked with when we did all these mm-hmm. films, he stayed there for another decade or so after I escaped. And he then did all, he not only did he redo that film that they were never going to redo, he redid several of the 20 or so films that, that I had done mm-hmm. with him. He then did them another time and redid films. And so, um, so yeah, they have this. So those films The ironic thing about those films is because they were on 16 millimeter film for so long, they never really crossed over into the digital world in terms of something that's out in the public in the wild. And, and, and ironically enough, um, I was the one who digitized all of those films, and ran the project to convert them into computer-based mm-hmm. files that could then be shown in all the organizations, um, in in uh, in a digital format. But when we did that, David Miscavige said, "We're only this is only going to get approved if you figure out a way that these films will never, ever, ever be able to get onto the internet." <laughs> And so the reason why those films are not on the internet is because of me. Mm-hmm. Um we the way the system that we made, we made all of the files separate. So some of them have subtitles, some of them have different a different language mm-hmm. and some of them have a different video file depending on what the language is. The titles and everything are specific to the language. Mm-hmm. And we actually built a media player called Psy player. And it takes the via the voice track and the specific um track of a video that's in english and the subtitle and it sort of like pours them into a mixer Mm. and plays them on the computer real time so you're not watching the english version of this film you're watching the english video and english audio and an english subtitle Mm. that are being combined live for you when you watch it and but when you're not watching it that film doesn't exist as you just saw it. wow! So you would have to, it's funny because I tell people you'd have to get one of these computers Mm -hmm. and you'd have to know the password. You'd also have to know how not to burn it down because we had to build in there like a fail safe. So if it got in the wrong hands and then somebody entered the wrong password, it would just burn the files down. So there's all these other things. Somebody recently wrote to me and they said, hey, we got this, we bought this storage option and it's got all this weird stuff Uh-oh. in it we don't know what it is but there's this computer system in there and it says golden era productions and we looked up golden era productions we we thought we we thought you might know something about this and so um long long story not so short um i ended up buying the computer that this person had purchased at the mm-hmm. auction that was in this storage unit and i got it and it was one of the computers that i had built and I thought, what are the chances that my password works on this computer? <laughs> anyway, no tea no no spoilers or no teasers, but my password did work on that computer. But um, that's the end of that story for now. Mm. But um, that is the reason why I think that those files just never really got out there because it we, it was it was uh, something that David Miscavige was very 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 cognizant of that if these things ended out there, it they would be wild if people on the internet saw them and so he tried to take every precaution as possible to make it so they wouldn't end up whether they do or don't in the future who knows
1: oh they inevitably but will but a, you know given time you think they
0: will and i know i know at least 3 pop people that have either the audio files or they have the video files or they have some part you've got the
1: have, computer you know,
0: well, I have a computer from a system, okay. but either way, they have all these. There's, they're, they really. It's, it's just like anything else in Scientology. They silo information and they silo things. Mm-hmm. So if that person does get out, or that that person does turn on them they, they've sort of are able to minimize the damage that person could do because they don't know the other parts of the story or they don't know the other player. It's the same thing they do with private investigators and all these mm-hmm. sort of, you know, um, operations they run against people like you mm-hmm. or, um, Russell Miller that they, 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 they're hiring, um, Scientology op- uh, office of special affairs is hiring attorney who 's hiring a private investigator who 's or a firm private mm. investigator firm who 's then hiring individual private investigators that are then hiring you know people to help mm. them or do things or other op- other private investigators so if any one of those people do anything there's so many cutouts along the way that it's like this is not science, This is not Scientology. There's like four people between that thing that happened and a Scientology mm-hmm. personnel. So you know, it's it's they've had. I try to explain this to people. They've had seventy years to perfect this con and to figure out, you know, how not to lose the game. They and and if you had, it's been sort of rumored that Scientology have about 3 billion dollars yep. in, you know, assets and cash or whatever at this point. And and so I sort of tell people if you had 3 billion dollars, how much would you spend to keep the 3 billion? Oh. And and my answer is I think David Miscavige would spend 2.5 billion dollars <laughs> <laughs> to keep a half a billion oh. of it you know, on lawyers and nonsense lawsuits and, you know, smearing, public smear campaigns and Google ads and, you know, whatever else you can dream up that costs money.
1: Yeah. It, 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 and and it, what you're describing is the cell system, which is used by terrorist groups uh, in espionage and uh, by uh, international criminal organizations that, that you have cutouts and, you, you know, this person doesn't actually know who that person is talking to. And so it creates what appears to be a safe system. But, of course, with Scientology, when people stop believing in it and when they realize that the emperor doesn't, in fact, have any clothes on, then it all comes apart. There are no punters anymore. There's nobody to buy. Among the tech films that you did look at, did you have the the David Mayo one?
0: No. So at the international headquarters... um, David Mayo, I wanna say I wanna say anything that has any mention of him is something that you cannot read or have access hmm. to as a SeaWorld member, depending on what level. Like if maybe if you were in the Religious Technology Center, you'd have access to that set of files. They have a system in the at the International Management, which is called the Data Files. Hmm. And you can almost look up anything Mm -hmm. in the, these files up to your cleared level of access. So I worked in golden era productions, so I had everything that you could get at any organization in the world that like a, a, like an organization, a Scientology Mm -hmm. organization, like in in Los Angeles or in Taiwan or in, you know, South America, I could see any of their files. Mm But I couldn't see anything that was marked for the Office of Special Affairs. And I couldn't see anything that was marked for Religious Technology Center or Author Services or, and in even some Golden Era Productions ones, I'd only have. Um, filtered access to some of those documents so if you and also if you were looking around for david mayo stuff as Sea org member that is those keystrokes are all recorded mm. somewhere so if you're poking it that's another thing like you say like oh did you ever see anything if i happen to come across something i might have made a note of it or something but even the funny the ironic thing about that in, now that I'm thinking about it, is everything I knew about David Mayo, I heard from um, David Miscavige directly. Mm-hmm. So he would tell us that the, they have these things, these um, processes they do at the flag land base that are called the L's. And there are these levels that any Scientologist can do no matter where they are on the Scientology training or processing chart. You can pay and do these levels. They probably cost fifty dollars to $100,000 depending mm. on how long you take to do them or whatever. It's a very, very big money maker for Scientology because they really don't have to do anything. You just pay them the money and then you do these counseling. You do these mm. auditing Scientology processing sessions and they just make tons and tons of money. But David Miscavige would bring this up on a very regular basis, that those were all written by David Mayo, and he purportedly did them on Hubbard. That's the story that I was told. Is that he sort of um, workshopped these with Hubbard and kind of did them with Hubbard, and then Hubbard just said, "Okay, go ahead, write those up, and that, and and we'll do those, and we'll do those at Flag. That'll be a Flag thing, or you know, whatever it was." And so you're sort of reliant on what did David Mayo do? What did Hubbard tell him to do? Because it was all basically just based off of this relationship that they had had. And because Scientology makes so much money, it, it, I'm, I I want to say when I left in 2005, this was one of the most money-making mm. things that Scientology had were these things. And if Scientologists were told, oh, those were written by the guy that we told you was the biggest, baddest, suppressive person in the entire world, it would make it would make us maybe not look that great that we've been making, you know, I want to say they've probably made hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars off of these. It's
1: called L I think it's L 10, 11 and list 10, list 11, list 12 um, released first in the early seventies. The, it was actually Otto Rose who worked with Hubbard on them. Um, I don't think David was, was in that particular team. Then he probably wrote them up later, um, yeah, And in fact, when they were released, around about 1974, Hubbard made a statement that he had worked. He'd, these were taken from an OT level, 15 levels above OT-8. So they're from OT-23, which I think is what caused David Miscavige to try and seize all of Pat Broker's files, the man who Hubbard had appointed as yeah. his heir, and to pay $11 million to private detectives to follow him for 24 years in the hope that he'd get these missing OT levels. Uh, they still haven't got them. Yeah. 1988 was was the last release. We've just had superpowers since then. Um,
0: yeah. That's also something that was very fascinating to me because um, it's very common knowledge at the international headquarters that there's no OT levels above OT8. That's just it's just common knowledge at the international headquarters that um, Hubbard had was supposed to write them and that he didn't. There is depending on who you talk to, because David Miscavige kind of changed the story Mm -hmm. around a little bit over the years. But according to David Miscavige um, he told L. Ron Hubbard told Ray Midoff what OT nine and 10 were. Okay. And Ray Midoff just forgot. <laughs> like he didn't take good notes and then he couldn't find the the not good notes and he just didn't mm-hmm. remember it. And so that to me, that is, it's just like, that's just what I knew from being in meetings with David Miscavige is like, oh yeah, what about Ray? You know, you didn't even do this and you forgot OT nine and 10, you know, and you just in a meeting like, oh, and you forgot what OT nine and 10 were supposed to be. You're just like, Wait a minute. Did I just hear that? Like did, Ray Midoff knew what OT 9 and 10 were, and he, they were so mind-blowing that they just blew right out of his
2: mind.
1: Yeah, he couldn't take
0: anymore. <laughs> he just didn't remember. So it's funny to me that they did spend all that time and money um, paying those private investigators to watch Pat Broker. for $11 million for years. In 24 years. Did you hear this? St- did you hear the story about how one of the um, private investigators, he enlisted his father to become friends with Pat Broker? And then for his birthday, the private investigator's father gave Pat Broker a cordless, a wireless phone, which was all the rage back then. And that had a transmitter in it so they could just record all of his phone calls. <laughs> to me, I'm go- that's how you know they don't have OT, oh, yeah. OT levels, past OT Otherwise, why would you spend, you know, millions and tens of millions of dollars hiring these guys to watch this dude in case, just in case he might have them? Because he said he didn't have them. He just told, the, the story I've heard is he told David Miscavige, I don't have them. He never, Hubbard never wrote them. He was working on crazy stuff, but he never wrote up anything. And so- Um, And I have a whole nother project that has to do with that, which um, is really going to be lots of fun. And we'll have to talk about that Mm. later. But um, I just wanted to wrap up here. We've been going at this for a bit. This was a fascinating conversation. I appreciate you um, putting up with uh, all my silliness. And um, yeah, we could um, we definitely should do another mm-hmm. one of these i know that you've done um the uh, you did another interview with claire mm-hmm. on um on our channel yep. and um i want to encourage everybody if you're watching this on the blown for good channel um there's a link to john's channel in the description please go over to his channel and give him a, uh, a like and a subscribe and um and uh yeah we definitely um should do this again we have to figure out what we would what other things we could talk about or we could just do it like this. I kind of like this format a little bit better where we don't we don't really have any sort of thing we're trying to do. We're just having a conversation and wherever it leads, it leads. Me too. Um because I'm a big yapper, I think they tend to go a little long, but I hope that I let you speak uh a proportionate <laughs> amount to what it, I speak. It, Mark so it's usually it's me saying that power. to my
1: guests. So you know i'm a regular i was um it's fine Yep,
0: i was giving claire a hard time that i said great interview with john um i she i had to edit a little like a a phone she got a phone call or something like that i had to chop out and i'm so i kind of skimmed through it and i said you could have let him talk a little, <laughs> um, and then and then she goes, "What?" And I go, "I'm just joking." Of course, if I have a, a video that I do with John, you're probably going to be able to accuse me uh, of letting. Uh, uh, I should maybe let him talk a little it, next
1: time. It's about conversation. I think people often come to the to, to YouTube thinking that they're going to see interviews, the kind of thing that you'd see on a TV show, you know, um, and and that's not what's happening. What's happening is that two people who are have an expertise and an experience in common are having a conversation. And for me, that's, that's what I want to see. I don't want to see a prepared list of questions and uh, something like that. I want to see where it goes. So this has been great. And um,
0: thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And if, if you're watching this and um, you want to leave a comment um, or you want us, you want to know about something else uh, John and I should uh, talk about, we can definitely list or have a, a, you know, Mm. a a sense of like, Oh, what do you know about this? Yeah. So if you've got something like that, please put it in the uh, comments below. Um, and then if you're listening on the podcast, we do put this out as a podcast as well. So if you're listening on the podcast, you can always go to the blown for good, uh, website, and we've got a place where you can comment there if you want to hear something else, or if you did enjoy this, uh, podcast or this episode we'd love to know so let us know in the comments mm-hmm. um if you enjoyed this if there's something else that you'd
1: like us yeah, and, to and i'll mirror but, uh, it on my site so again i do occasionally get to answer comments there i do occasionally have a spare hour not very often um and but i, I really think it you know I believe that, that we are a community. It's not a matter of there being gurus who can tell us what to do and what totally. to do. It's exactly the opposite of that. So and I have learned so much, you know, when I was writing at Tony Ortega's Bunker, people would make the most intelligent comments. They're, they're, you know, I totally. remember saying something about the training routines and this guy came on and said, I felt that I was being trained to be a sociopath. And you go, That's actually true. <laughs> you know, you're Your feelings are being got out of the way through all of this drilling so that you can be a weapon of Scientology, you know.
0: Yeah, and the last thing I wanted to say, uh, just along the same lines as that, is sometimes someone who's been in Scientology, they may look at something from a completely different aspect that I Mm. would never look at it from because I worked there and I was sort of, um, I wasn't, I wasn't there to be enlightened. Mm. I was there to do a job. Yeah. So my kind of take on a lot of this is just like I had to deal, I had to learn about the Scientology stuff just so they would let me do my my job. I didn't do it because <laughs> I wanted to get better. I didn't want to better myself mm. using that. I had to do it because it was required. It was sort of like on the job training that you were required to do just in order to you know film a movie or drive a car or you know mm. anything that you do in the organization. so um so yeah i love seeing the comments and i do try to get um look at the comments mm. um and kind of go through there and see if there's anything else and, and i've actually even done a few videos on the channel um that were solely bas- mm. based off a of suggestion from a comment so yeah, i have two um we definitely look through that great awesome man i appreciate it <clears throat> thanks again guys thanks for everybody who tuned in and uh until next time thanks for watching if you'd like to help support the channel feel free to check out the merch store link in the description we have hail Zenu. xenu is my homeboy and bfg branded mouse pads shirts mugs all sorts of other stuff in there that helps us to bring you new content on a regular basis You can also pick up a copy of my book, Blown for Good, Behind the Iron Curtain of Scientology, in hardback, Kindle, and Audible versions as well. There's also a link to our podcast, and you can get that on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to watch another video, you can click on this link right here, or you can click on this one here, or you can click on the subscribe button right here. Thanks a lot. Until next time.